Well, hey there. Good to see you guys. Welcome to worship this morning. Those of you who don't know me, my name's David Gadini, pastor here on staff. Just big shout out, big thank you. Glad you could be a part. And uh, I'm with Steve. 80 degree weather is coming, you know? Good stuff on the horizon. We're going to jump in in just a second. But before I do, last week I told you about the FOF store that opened up. Today, it closes. So if you're looking to get merch, make sure to hop on the website, fellowshipoffaith.org. Get your stuff today. We're ready to go. All right? Let's jump in. Six Hebrew words. We're in week three. Let's do a recap. Two weeks ago, shared this word pronounced ahava. God would refer to Abraham as his ahava, to Israel by extension, and as his ahava, often translated his good friend, his intimate friend, someone he loves. Deuteronomy 6 would say, Shema Israel, Yahweh is God, Yahweh alone, and you shall ahava, Yahweh your God with all of your heart, with all of your, your life force, with all of your strength and fortitude. It's this word that describes the nature of God and the relationship he seeks to have with people that God by nature is ahava and seeks to have ahava with you. Last week, we went into unchartable territory, untranslatable territory, chesed. You gotta get it, chesed, right? That God is chesed. We talked about the chesed God, and I want to put the passage back on the screen for you again today that I showed you last week. Let's have it here, okay? Where it says this, in a surge of anger, Isaiah records, Yahweh says, I hid my face. I hid my face for a moment, but with chesed, I will have compassion on you says Yahweh, your Redeemer. Mercy, unfailing love, loyalty, covenantal faithfulness. Where do you even go with this word? But God has it, and God is it. God has chesed for you. So we've had ahava, give me an ahava. We've had chesed, give me a chesed. I know you want to do it, go There you go. Today, I'm bringing you into a third mind anchor, a third conceptual field, a a collection of words, really, but all all one word in English that's actually anchored here in this same passage in a surge of what? Anger. Anger. Today I want to talk to you about anger. Not so much about your anger, not so much how to deal with your angry anger, but what I want to talk to you more specifically about is how we understand God. Because Isaiah is clear. Yahweh is a God who gets mad. In a surge of anger, I hid my face for you for a moment, but with Hesed, I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. Yes, Yahweh is Chesed, but Yahweh gets mad too. And you might not like the idea so much of a God who gets mad, but he does. 
At least the Bible says he does, and so there's no use trying to sidestep it. Because see, the way that the Bible talks about God is not so much as an impersonal force, but as a person. And if he is a person, that means he has a personality, right? And with personality, of course, comes likes and dislikes, turn-ons and turn-offs, things that kind of get them happy, things that really don't, just like any relationship that you might have. It's the, the end result, shall I say, or the inevitability might be a better way of putting it, of interacting with a sentient being. Are you following me? You know, the thing is, gravity can send you to the ground, but gravity does it impassionately. Gravity doesn't care. It doesn't care if you get hurt. It doesn't care if you want to. It doesn't care about you at all. It has no investment in the game because it's just a force without personhood, without personality. And sometimes people tend to think of God that way, as though he's just a principle, a maxim, a a force of this world. But the Bible and Isaiah say something very different, that God, God is real. God is knowable. God is relatable. And that means just while God will be filled with love and joy, God at times will also get angry. This person called Yahweh, if you allow me to put it that way, who has a very real and knowable personality, is one who desires to be in relationship with his creation, and that means a relationship with you. He doesn't just stand above it. It's not just some tunable principles that you can figure out. No, no, he wants to be involved and invested. And anytime you're in a relationship, would you agree, anytime you are in a relationship, at least a relationship that's worth having, there comes moments where you hurt each other, where you disappoint each other, where at times you even betray each other or at least let each other down. And when it's coming from someone that's important to you or revolving around something that's important to you or something that you love, it gets you kind of mad, doesn't it? Sure, it hurts. Sure, there's other emotions, but with it, don't you find that there's often anger? And isn't it ironic, in the closest of relationships, that's where you often find anger the most? Because it's the people who are closest to us that can often hurt us most deeply. And it's the people who are closest to us and most involved with us that, well, we rub against each other and start to be abrasive with each other. And the same is true with God. God loves you, and God wants to be in a relationship with you. God is Ahava, and God is Chesed. But that means, in the nature of our relationship with God, we disappoint Him. We hurt Him. We do things that go so against the grain of what's important to Him that gets mad. He feels that. It affects him deeply. God is a God who is affected deeply. 
And I bet the reverse is true as well. I bet there's times that you've had the same where God has disappointed you. God has hurt you. God has done something or said something or allowed something that goes against the grain of what you find so important and it just rubs you the wrong way. You can admit it. Have you ever been there? I stand alone. But isn't it strange that it's okay in many of our minds, right? Isn't it strange, if you thought about this, that it's perfectly acceptable for us to be angry with God? But the moment that God dare get angry, oh, out of bounds here, Lord, out of bounds, right? No, let's not sidestep it. God, he's a God who gets mad. Anger is the byproduct. It's the inevitable byproduct of any relationship worth having. I want to show you an example today of how this plays out with a real person in the biblical scene. We're going to go back to Moses. You know Moses? I don't, but it'll be cool to meet him someday. <laughs> you may remember the story of the Exodus. If you haven't read it, it's some of the most gripping material in the Bible. Not the, best, not the back half of Exodus. It'll put you to sleep. But the first half of Exodus, chapter 1 through 20, the story of God's people in slavery in Egypt crying out to God, when will you see? When will you hear? When will you do something? God deeply affected by the wrong being done to his people, by the wrong being perpetrated in his world, and God coming down, and he does it through a person named Moses. He selects a man named Moses. And in Exodus chapter 3, he comes to Moses in a burning bush. Moses is in exile out in the desert. He was once on top of life and had everything. In a surge of anger, Moses struck down an Egyptian who he saw brutalizing one of his fellow Hebrews. And it made him a wanted man. And so what do you do? Well, the natural thing anyone does when they're a wanted man, you flee the country. And he's out in the desert, alone, intending the sheep of his father-in-law. He sees this bush, and it's engulfed in flame. And he's watching this thing. And I love the classic line, the classic translation of how it's put. The same one you'll see on the Holocaust Museum, actually, where it's quoted in Exodus 3, and the bush was not consumed. He goes and sees it. And Exodus says that Yahweh appears to him in the bush, and he says, Moses, Moses, falls to his face, here I am. Take off your shoes, for you are standing on a holy ground. And Yahweh enters into a relationship with Moses. He introduces himself. He says, your, your forefathers knew me as, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew me by a title, but hi, my name is Yahweh. God chooses to introduce himself. He enters into relationship with Moses. Moses. 
And he starts to share with Moses what's important to him because that's what you do in relationships. You talk about what you love. You talk about where you're going. You talk about what you want. He shares with Moses the plight of the Israelites, what he sees, what he knows, what he wants to do about it. And he says, Moses, I want to do it with you because I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to do it with you and through you. And I want you to go. I'm going to send you back into Egypt. I'm going to send you back against the very people you fear. I'm going to send you back against those who have driven you out. I am going to send you back and you are going to go with my presence. You are going to go with my power. I will be with you because when you're in a relationship, you do life together, don't you? I'm going to go with you. And you are going to do signs and wonders. People are going to see that I am your God. And you are my Ahava. You are going to go and through you, Israel will be free. Rock on, right? Let's go. Read Exodus 3. <laughs> Nothing like it. No, 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 wait, wait a minute, God. Wait a minute. You know what? I'm happier with gravity. This relationship thing is getting too hot to handle. Wait, wait, you, you, you want to do things with me? You're going to put expectations upon me? We are, we are going to invest in each other's life and that's going to mean things? I'm not just completely independent. No, 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 wait, God, you got the wrong guy. I'm not making this stuff up. Go read it. You got the wrong guy. God comes back. No, 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 no. I'm going to do it. Moses comes back. No, 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 no. Yeah, go, go, go. No, no, no. Go, go, go. No, no, no. I think it just quotes it like that like 18 times or something back and forth. So then what does Moses do? Well, he does what anyone who's stuck in a relationship starts to do. You start to make excuses. Well, well, and I can almost see Moses forcing the stutter. Well, well, well God, I'm not that good in public speaking, he says that. He's like, I am not one of eloquent speech. I'm sorry, you cannot say you're not one of eloquent speech if you use the term eloquent speech. <laughs> I am not one of eloquent speech. And here's what comes next. Give it to me. Then Yahweh's anger burned against Moses. And you can almost see him throwing up his hands. Fine. So what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? You can't speak well. I know he can speak well. You ain't going to do it because God ain't going to force you. Hear this. God is not going to force you. Sometimes I wish God would force me. Oh, I'd be mad about it. And I'd whine about it and I'd gripe about it. Can you look back? at life and sometimes wish that God forced you? God's not a God that forces himself. Because you don't force things in a relationship. So what about Aaron, your brother? He could speak well. You know, he's already on his way to meet you. And his heart will be glad when he sees you because I'll tell you, mine ain't right now. God gets mad. We do things that hurt him. We do things that frustrate him. We do things that disappoint 
him. And just like you, sometimes Yahweh's anger burns. Now here's where it gets a lot of fun. And I want to bring you into Hebrew country today. And as I do, I want you to think. I want you to think about how profound this is. That God allows you to disagree with him. I mean, just kind of settle into that for a minute. That if you really believe that God is the Lord High Being of the universe, that if I was to come into his presence, I should be taking off my shoes because even the ground in his eye shot becomes holy, allows me to argue with him, allows me to disagree with him, to debate with him, to challenge him, to confront him. Tell you, if I was God, I'd be like, who do you think you are? Right? Done. Seven billion others, you're running around, I don't need you getting on my nerves. Think about how profound it is that God would let someone as insignificant as me be a man and stand up to him, challenge him, argue with him. Crazy, isn't it? Crazy, isn't it? And you know what it's like when you're in those positions <laughs> and, and someone is just doing everything and you could put him in the dirt. But you're not that kind of person because you know that it's wrong. And through it all, this person is important to you, or even if not to you, just important because they're a person. And you know what that emotion is like when there's nothing else to do, you just burn with anger. You go home and you take it out on your spouse. You go and you're kicking things around. You're grumping and, uh, and you're in a bad mood. We've all been there, right? Three days or again, am I standing alone? <laughs> but I want to take you into the Hebrew now, like I just said. And I want you to kind of burn that phrase, Yahweh's anger burned, his anger burned. And I want to bring you into the Hebrew country of this word today, teach you the third word, and here it is. Hama'af. Hama'af. A mind anchor for understanding God that Isaiah writes about and the Old Testament uses frequently is Hama'af. Now, Hama'af is what's standing behind that word or better put phrase in Exodus 4. Remember it? Yahweh's anger burned. Let me break it down with you, though, because the literal is so much cooler. First of all, Hebrew reads right to left. So even though you're reading Hama'af from left to right, when you look at the characters on the bottom, you start at the right and go left. Okay, first big lesson. Now, do you see the word on the right? The bottom word on the right, the one that you, the squigglies. Hama, give me a hama. This is a word that means to burn. 
okay, to burn. Sometimes in the Bible, it will also get translated as fever. To burn, heat, hot. Something is smoldering. Something is burning. Something is on fire. The bush was aflame and not consumed. Yahweh's anger, Hamad. All right? But now let's go to the second Hebrew word, af. Give me an af. And let me show you what an af is. Take your hand. Actually, take it. Go like this. You have just grabbed your off. The literal of what Isaiah often prints and the book of Exodus describes, the literal is that Yahweh's nose burned. Yahweh gets a burning nose. I love this imagery, right? When you get mad, you get all hot in the nose. You get all, right? You're huffing and you're puffing and your nose is inflamed, right? I, 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 like, I see these like cartoons. Remember like cartoons from the 40s and the 50s when people would get stomping mad and you'd hear like the, like the train whistle blow and you'd see the steam coming out their ears and out their nose. It's like the image I get of God just kind of, you know, with the steam coming about his nose. I get the image of like the bull that's snorting, hot and red and angry. God's nose burns. To go back to Exodus 4, it says, Then Yahweh's nose began to burn. Yahweh's nose burned. God gets a fiery nose. If God ever gets angry, that means that his nose has gotten burning against you snorting and going and stuff like that. And you can start to see how concrete, can't you? And how personable even, how personable the Bible describes who Yahweh is. I encourage you that the next time you're face to face with someone and they start getting all hot and bothered, to just pause for a moment and put your hand under their nose and go, oh, sir, sir, I see that your nose is burning. It'll diffuse the situation, I promise you, right away. All right? Hamaf, his nose burns. These two words that become anger, but it's so much richer, isn't it, when Yahweh's nose burns? And I'll tell you, people don't like the idea that Yahweh's nose burns. But I love what Gwen said. You want a God whose nose burns. You want a God who gets angry. Because people, real people, get angry when those that they love get hurt. Let me show you an example of how Yahweh's nose burns. Next passage, please. In Isaiah 40 following, Israel finds themselves in exile at the hands of the Babylonians. 
They find themselves in exile because no matter how many warnings God had given them, they rejected him, they refused him, they cheated on him, they betrayed him, and they utterly did everything in their power to ignore, dismiss, or destroy the relationship. And God got mad. And in a surge of anger, as Isaiah says, he handed Israel over to the Babylonians. Fine, you don't want me? Go with them. And the Babylonians brutalized them. Just like the Egyptians long ago, the Babylonians brutalized them. And as angry as God may have been, as we saw that passage in a moment, what makes him matter still is when he sees people brutalizing those that he loves. And so Isaiah says, to the Babylonians, sit in silence, go into darkness, daughter of the Babylonians, no more will you be called queen of the kingdoms. I was angry with my people, my nose burned against them. And you could even say I desecrated my inheritance. And I gave them into your hands, Babylon, but you showed them no mercy. Fascinating, isn't it? that even when God does not show mercy, we are called to? I gave them into your hands, but you did not show them mercy. And you know what it did? It made God snorting mad. So what does he say? Babylon disaster will come upon you, and you will not know how to conjure it away. Parents, have you ever seen your kid brutalized? How does it make you feel? Makes you mad. Makes us mad when someone we love gets treated unjustly. When someone we love gets abused, when someone we love is cruelly hurt, God gets mad over the things that hurt you. God gets snorting mad over the things of this world that harm and destroy you. Oh yeah, his nose burns, and I'll tell you this, I think you actually want a God who gets mad. And yet the fascinating thing about Yahweh is that it is not his anger that defines him. It's not his anger that defines him. You know, there's some people who get angry and there's some people who are angry. You've known the difference, haven't you? There's some people who get angry and there's some people who are angry. Many people mistakenly think God is the latter, that God is an angry God. But the message of Isaiah, the message of the prophets, and the message of Christ is that God is not the latter. God is the former. God is not a God who is angry. God is a God who gets angry because anger does not define God. I love this next passage. I love this next passage because it pushes the metaphor further. Let's have it. He says, for my own name's sake, I delay my my wrath, my anger, right? For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. In other words, God's saying, I'm patient. I put up with it. 
I take it. I let you walk all over me. I play the doormat. I roll over backwards. I do it again and again and again. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. But we know that the literal underneath has something to do with burning noses. So if getting angry is about a burning nose, what do you think delaying anger might be? Shortening it? Now, here's the phrase. For my own name's sake, I make my nose long. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you. For my own name's sake, I make my nose big. Yahweh has a big nose. <laughs> now try to unpack it here for a minute. Try to go with the, 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 the visual logic of it all. Because if you, have a snor- if you have a small nose, the fire has nowhere to go but out. But the bigger your nose, the more fire it can hold. The bigger your nose, the more fire that stays contained, and the more fire that stays contained is the less fire that comes pouring out on you. Are you with me? This is how Hebrew thinks, all right? Yahweh has a big nose. Yahweh, the long-nosed God. I mean, I get this like image, like I almost seem like this porpoise, you know, like this, this, this dude, like this big schnoz, like on his face. This is, this is the picture that Isaiah is, is giving us today. And you can't not even say it like, like Yahweh, the long-nosed God, without feeling like a little bit like you're going to be struck by lightning in a moment. But the very fact that he doesn't is proof that he's a long-nosed God. Yahweh, your redeemer, Yahweh, your rock, Yahweh, your savior, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Yahweh, the holy one, Yahweh, Lord of hosts. How often do you pray, oh, Yahweh, long-nosed God? Can I ask, why don't you? Because isn't it just as profound as everything else? Isn't what it says just as amazing to the nature of who God is? Is anything else? That Yahweh has the biggest nose you've ever seen. You ever go down to Springfield, Illinois? They got that big, like, Lincoln nose thing. It's like eight tons and four feet tall, and you could, like, rub it. And, you know, it's, it's really kind of gross if you think about it. They ain't got nothing on the nose of Yahweh. I love how Jesus demonstrates this. Go with me to a story in John 20. Jesus has been crucified. We know the events leading up to it very well. If not, pick any of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or, well, John. Read John 18 and 19. If the details are fuzzy, just to see what Jesus endured. Things that would make anyone angry, the way his friends betrayed him, his disciples bailed on him, the way he was unjustly accused, the way he was set up, the way he was lied about, the way he was made a scapegoat, 
The way he was treated, the way he was spit upon, the way he was mocked, the way he was tortured, things that would make anyone mad any step along the way, especially when you have the power to do something about it. But not fire and wrath, not legions of angels called from the sky. No, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But come with me to John 20. And Jesus is risen from the grave. He's back. The disciples haven't come to terms with it yet. They haven't really seen him yet. And John records the story where, what do you do after following Jesus for three years? You turn your back on him. He gets killed. And you're sitting there in the aftermath. We find him on a boat in the Sea of Galilee fishing again. Going back to what they did at first, what else do they know? And they're in the boat on the sea. And they look. And just like happened to them once before, they see walking on the beach. Wait a minute. Wait. I think it's, I think it's Jesus. No, he died. No, no, no. Look, it's Jesus. Wait, Mary, Mary said she saw him. Wait, it's, it's. Peter Peter, who denied him three times, he gets so excited. It literally says this. Look it up. It's so much fun. He gets so excited that he's in the boat. He's out at the sea. He puts on his coat to jump in the water and swim out to Jesus. The guy is just out of his mind. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's caught up in the emotion. He's getting dressed to go in the pool. All right? He gets in the pool. He swims to Jesus. They get on the Jesus. They pull into all these fish. Get the fish. They're on the other side. They pull in more fish than they've ever seen. They don't know what to do. And then they're standing face to face with Jesus on the beach. They have fish poured everywhere. Another miracle. Jesus alive. Fish everywhere. We're repeating the cycle. It's like we've lived this before. And they look at Jesus and it says they don't say a word. Because if you've ever had that moment when you're back face to face with the person you hurt, the person you betrayed, and they don't say a word. Because in that moment, you're asking yourself, where do we go from here? What I have done has his inalterably altered the course of this relationship. It has damaged it and hurt it in a way from which there's no recovery. What does he think? What's he going to say? What's he going to do? And whatever he says or does, I, I mean, I, I deserve it. I dread it, but I deserve it. Have you ever been in that place? Again, I stand alone. But if you ever are, you'll know exactly what I mean. And he looks at Jesus, and Jesus looks at him. And here's what Jesus asks him. Do you love me? How do I read that one? Am I being set up? You know, as you're rubbing my nose in it a little bit? It's not like his memory got washed post-resurrection here. Do you love me? Is he sincere? 
Is it a trap? I mean, Jesus is known for this kind of thing, you know? Is he sucking me in here? And I'm... Lord. And you could hear, you could just hear the, the sorrow, the brokenness in Peter. Lord, you know that I love you. And listen to what Jesus says. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. Peter, come on. Do you love me? And Peter's starting to freak out at this point. Feeling like he really swallowed the bait. He's really... This isn't going anywhere good. Lord, you know that I love you. Yeah, I know. Take care of my sheep. No anger. No wrath. No getting even. No writing them off. No getting it off his chest so he can go away and feel good that day. None of that from Jesus. No, the relationship is back. And the past is not forgotten, but it doesn't affect what we have. Not in a negative way. No, I'm here, Peter. And no matter what you've done to me, Anger is not what defines me. I want to pick up where we left off. Right here, right now, today. This is God. This is the relationship God seeks with you. Whatever it might be that you have done to hurt him, betray him, disappoint him, however lightly you may have held your relationship with him, how easily you may have have dismissed it, how quickly you may have walked away, wherever you are with that today. Yahweh is there with a nose bigger than you can ever see. Asking a very sincere question aimed towards healing. Do you love me? And I think it's an invitation from a big-nosed God to every single human being.